you know, I wanted to start with your title. Everybody calls them managing partner, CEO, or this and that. You call yourself chief engineer. Why? So chief engineer is really a, a little bit of a pun. Um, firstly, I call my firm engineering capital, which is a double entendre. There's two meanings to that, right? One, it's venture capital for engineers. Because I invest in deeply technical companies, the obvious people who obviously I'm investing in are engineers, and so it's venture capital for engineers. But it is also a little bit of a joke because I am engineering the capital. You know, my job as a VC is to invest a small amount of capital and get a large amount of capital back. And so it's a little bit of a pun on that. Uh, and since I am the founder of the firm and I get the luxury of choosing my own title, I decided to call myself the chief engineer, both on the technology side and on the finance side. Wow. So I felt that the title fits. That's impressive actually. And you know, I'm fortunate I met a lot of investors and uh, the level of depth I've seen when you have conversation with anyone, even just a, any conversation, I see you always add value, which is really profound. So coming back to that, since you read a lot, I know, and you really go deeper, what do you see as a future of the world, especially now with a post pandemic and hopefully we will have the vaccine soon, but irrespective, we uh, all have cumulatively, I believe have decided it is, it is a problem, we'll deal with it. But how do you see we come out of it and what does the future look like? How's the future? You know, people think of future as a time dimension, as in when will what thing will happen in the future? I prefer to think about the future as a geographic or a location dimension. In other words, where is the future now? So let's take your example of the vaccine. Is there a vaccine for COVID today? Guess what? There already is a vaccine. It exists in laboratories. It is being tried on a few people. Some of them might actually even work. We don't know for sure. We haven't finished the trials, but there are people walking around right now in China, in the UK and here in the US who have tried a few of these experimental vaccines. And so they are already living in the future because they've already got the vaccine and some, of, some percentage of those have gotten the correct vaccine. We just don't know which one is which yet. Which one is and the you can say the same thing. You can say the same thing about any technology. So mm -hmm. let's, let's look at uh, autonomous cars. Mm -hmm. Let's look at electric cars. Are there autonomous cars today in the world? Yes, they exist today. But we don't think of them as being here today in general, because they're not pervasive. The average car is not an autonomous car. The average car is not an electric car, but there's already a few electric cars. There's already a few autonomous cars which are doing something interesting. So I think the way to think about the future is always to, not to ask the question, when will what happen, but rather where is the thing happening that you are interested in? Um, and so if you reduce it to a location problem, a geography problem, then I think your entire perspective changes as an entrepreneur, as an investor, as an academic, as an economist, as a politician, it doesn't matter what vertical application you are using for the future. But if you reduce it to a geographic problem, then it becomes a very interesting way of solving and thinking about the future. And I claim you can look at any issue of the future, or technology, politics, geography, et cetera, and think about it through the lens of where is it happening today? True, true. So Ashmit, that brings uh, me to the next question I have for you is because you are seeing hundreds of companies, maybe more than that on monthly basis. Some of those doesn't even arrive your email in a way. 
where do you see the problem? Because when I talk about it is we are talking about a data-driven world. And when we talk about data-driven world, the challenges, in my opinion, is we need so much of data because now computational power is not an issue. NVIDIA just bought ARM. So we are talking about like, interesting kind of CPUs available. And since you are an engineer, really an engineer, uh, you can see how data will be processed. We will be able to process so much data on just a small chip, which is going to be phenomenal power. I don't see data sharing. Where do you see the problem? Like even vaccine, if we talk about it, biggest problem I see it is even today, uh, or the, the whole world came uh, like almost together to solve this problem, but I'm not seeing data is available at one place where all the pharma companies, all thinkers, can go and create this solution. You know, data is an incredibly interesting commodity and it is unquestionable that data is going to drive the future. In fact, sometimes people use the phrase data is the new oil to represent you know, how powerful it is, how important it is. Just like oil transformed the world economy um, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, it created the largest company in the world. Rockefeller, of course, started Standard Oil, became you know, the richest man in the world because he really took the world from a coal economy into a coal economy at that time. And that has shaped geopolitics right through there. I mean, if you look at the map of the Middle East today, it is almost entirely drawn because of geopolitical decisions that were made in the pursuit of oil. So just like that, data is an incredibly powerful commodity and it will drive the future. And so, yes, data is the new oil, it's important, but here's another aspect of the same data. Just like data is the new oil, I like to say data is also the new asbestos. In other words, data is a toxic commodity, which is going to kill you if you are not careful how you manage it and how you deal with it. And right now the world is grappling with this dual nature of data. Yes, data is a new oil and data is asbestos, and they have to deal with both. And I think one of the best examples of that is what recently happened with TikTok. What is TikTok? It's a consumer application. What is the data in TikTok? It's very casual information. Some teenager doing a dance somewhere in some country, who cares? It's very casual, it's fun content. We've all seen those videos, we've enjoyed them. And yet it's a geopolitical battle between China and America is being waged on the future of TikTok because TikTok has data. They have data on teenagers dancing and liking videos, which is suddenly impacting the very power of the whole world. That is because data has this dual nature. It's incredibly powerful and it can be toxic. And now this company TikTok will probably die. I don't know exactly what will happen. Obviously this battle is being waged as we speak. Maybe Oracle will end up owning a portion of it. Uh, but this company may die just because of the data that it has, yeah. just because it happens to have this information. So data is definitely the future. It is definitely a very interesting commodity and it is going to shape the world in ways that we cannot even imagine yet. And the people who are living the future already, who are thinking about it, are already taking action. This morning, we saw a press release where NVIDIA announced that they're going to buy ARM. $40 billion, largest acquisition in NVIDIA history. Jensen Wang, uh, you know, uh, another alum from Stanford, you know, really, really interesting guy, uh, is uh, you know, taking a huge move because he wants to shape the future of how we process data. Remember, what is a computer? It's a data processor, exactly. right? That's really the definition of a computer if you go all the way back to its definition. Um, in fact, Alan Turing proved 
that uh, comp that instructions and data is the same thing in a computer in a Turing machine. They are identical, yeah. right? You can you can transform any instruction into data and any any data into an instruction, sure. uh, if you really look at the core of computer science. So that is the nature of this commodity. It's a very powerful nature. We don't fully understand it. Certainly, the politicians have not caught up with it. The politicians are far behind. The laws are far behind. The governments are far behind. And we are just beginning to see the initial cases um, with cyber theft, with privacy, with you know, fake news, with all of these things which is going on, which are all forms of data at the end of the day, um, which is going to shape the future. Now, exactly in what way, I cannot tell you. But I can tell you that whatever that way is already exists somewhere. Our job as venture capitalists, as engineers, as people who are trying to push the edge in the future is to find out where it is. Where is it that someone is doing something interesting? So Ashmit, I'll give you an example of the data where I saw the data and where I see the challenges and I, there may be an opportunity for all IITians or the people who are listening to this uh, video. So I uh, happened to met uh, uh, Chris Murray. Chris is uh, considered uh, like the father of uh, when it comes to the data in a way in the healthcare space. He works with Bill Gates Foundation, uh, organization called IMHE. Uh, Bill Gates gave him a billion dollar actually, Gates Foundation. And uh, he has, uh, we saw because they brought us in and see how to visualize the data. Uh, so, because we have a lot of background in the healthcare space, this is, we thought, they thought we can do it. And we were able to do, we did some POCs with them. They have petabytes of data, not gigabytes here. They have petabytes of data. In fact, in my opinion, they have more data about India and the mortality of uh, people in India than even Indian government. I won't be surprised if that's the case. So they have amassed so much data. And what I was wondering is that if we talk about open data, but we never put it out there in such a way that it is managed and controlled, because we have the network for ages. What is a network? Is the data flowing securely? Like your communication with me, it is fairly secure. Of course, the hackers are there and all that, but in reality, it is pretty secure. Where I see the challenge is at the global level, there is no, almost like a DNA system for the human data. There is no system to predict these kind of uh, pandemic which happen. We have systems, alerting system for, uh, different natural calamities to earthquake to everything but nothing for human and i find it very surprising that uh, i couldn't find even a single company on the planet where they are putting this open data initiative and creating this system so we can predict or we can see if anything like this happened today what do you think about that you know the problem with data today is that because it is so powerful, people don't trust other people with their data. So it's really a trust issue at the end of the day. Um, the reason we don't have open data, the reason companies don't share more information, even when it is in their interest, when it is more valuable for them to be able to do it, is because they don't trust each other. So this is really a trust problem. And you can solve trust problems in different ways. The two most obvious ones are to use legal frameworks. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes people will pass a law and they will say, hey, you can do this with this data or you cannot, or you, even though you have this information. And probably the best example is GDPR in Europe or CCPA here in California. You know, people have passed laws to regulate how information is shared because of this lack of trust. Mm 
as a way to increase trust. The other way you can solve trust is through technology, right? Very good engineers, you know, starting with Diffie-Hellman originally. Um, today we use SSL on the internet. Uh, people who have done homomorphic encryption or even just classical simple basic encryption, uh, SMPC, you know, all of these techniques, they facilitate data sharing. They can increase trust. Uh, people have invented whole new ways of solving this. Bitcoin is the most recent example where there was a creative new solution to the Byzantine general's problem. Nobody, I mean, it was thought to be an unsolved problem. And here suddenly Satoshi Nakamoto writes one paper and suddenly there's a currency. Suddenly we can have this shared ledger where you can trust the ledger, even though you cannot trust any of the other parties who are interacting with that ledger. And that is the Byzantine general's problem. And that is really what Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he is, we don't know who he is, um, but that's really the problem that he solved uh, by doing it. So the second way people do it is with technology. People are constantly developing technologies. I also have some companies which are working in this space that are pushing the state of the art. You know, companies like Baffle, companies like Robust Intelligence, those are my companies that are pushing the state of the art uh, in terms of enabling this trust. Um, and then finally, there are uh, the expectations of us as human beings. In other words, what do we consider to be private? One of the things that Facebook did is that it changed the expectations that people had for privacy. It actually lowered our expectation on privacy and people started sharing more information. Now, some people will argue that they went too far, they lowered it too much, and that created other problems. And there's valid questions to be answered from a, again, from a social science perspective or a legal perspective over there. But just as an observer of the system, what I'm saying is this is ultimately a problem of trust. This is a problem of trust and you can solve trust in different ways. You can come up with innovations and whoever can move the state of the art can have a huge impact on the world in because ultimately this world is now being driven by data. It is a world of bits, not atoms. Um, that's often the way people will describe the description, the, the difference. Um, bits are bits, atoms are atoms. Yeah, that's 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 and I still remember uh, having lunch or dinner or even just a cup of coffee with people. people. People were very open sharing their idea. Nobody has a problem sharing the idea in Silicon Valley, which I find very, initially I find it really, why are you share, telling me all this? But I find collaboratively, we create idea better. If I share, I get some input. I put that input and I create. And if you look at the companies like even VMware or the company like Rubrics, you have invested when they started and where are they, they have completely evolved. It's not exactly what they started with. And they started with very few people and the company has grown big. So point I, and when I go to the rest of the world, uh, including Las Vegas or Nevada, I find people are very conservative when they share their ideas. They think their idea is the best idea if they share and they lose everything. And the problem I'm seeing, uh, Ashmit, uh, which people like you and with the help of uh, or the, our audience can solve is we have to create more or less like a blueprint for this data sharing. I had a similar conversation with Nachiket Moore, who was uh, heading uh, Gates Foundation in India uh, last week. Uh, the big problem is in India, doctor doesn't even know what he has prescribed to this patient. So there are two extremes right? That you go to the hospital, if you don't have that paper, he doesn't know what problem you have. So the challenge I'm uh, presenting to you and our audiences, can we come up with this open data standard where we can build a system 
where the trust issue is resolved, as you are talking about. We have done it in all other sectors. Why can't we do it in health care? It is possible. We can anonymize data. We can take out a lot of information. We can make sure there is a authentication-based system. We have different audits. All those things, we are sharing our credit data. We are sharing our social security. I mean, this is more important, but not as important as our bank account. Our bank account is online. Our money is online. Our life is online. I mean, I was just looking at it. I was talking to my kid and I say, I don't know how much $100,000, how heavy is $100,000? Because I never had $100,000 in my hand. And, uh, yes. and I say, you know, I was telling him that story of JP Morgan Chase when his father came in and he gave him a million dollars. And he says, go and on your own, if you know that story. It's a really bizarre story and he couldn't even lift that bag. Yes. So, so, so the money is changed. Exactly what you're talking about. It's not even atom, it's bytes now. So where do you see the opportunity and what kind of challenges you see or challenges you have for our audience? So Sanjeev, firstly, let's recognize that what you're saying is absolutely right. The, if we could share more data, if we could share more information, we could have a huge impact in healthcare. We could have a huge impact in many other areas in the world. And there are reasons that people don't do that which like I said, could be legal, could be technical, et cetera. There's other solutions to solving them. Let's also recognize that what made Silicon Valley so special and why did Silicon Valley succeed so well has to do with trust. It has to do with the fact that it was an open system where people were willing to share ideas, where they were willing to exchange. For example, people often forget that in California, it is illegal to stop your employee from going to work for your competitor and take whatever is in their head with them. Yeah. You know, that's very counterintuitive to a business friendly climate. By the way, that's why the Boston venture capital community completely died almost because uh, you know, in, in Massachusetts, you can enforce non-compete laws. You can stop your employees from going to your competitor. In California, you can't do it. And there's a historical reason why that happened. But that is what allowed California to become really the center for innovation, many other factors. But that was one of the core factors which enabled it was that it was an open and a high trust society. This is under attack. There are reasons to be pessimistic about it. Uh, and that may happen and that would be very sad. It would be very unfortunate if that ended up happening. Uh, but anytime you want very rapid innovation, you want dramatic change, you want the ability to do it, you have to create a high trust environment where this exchange of ideas and exchange of information can take place. In small pockets, it happened in the past. You know, hundreds of years ago, it happened in universities in Europe. Um, we saw the Renaissance where there would be a small monastery or a small university and people would exchange ideas, talk about it, trade and share that information. And then of course, you know, that exploded, grew, became the part of the Renaissance, became the scientific revolution that we live with. It came to a real productive fruition here in Silicon Valley, but there's nothing which prevents it from either dying in Silicon Valley or being replicated somewhere else, but it is a very hard problem. I can tell you, I used to be at a large firm and I was running you know, uh, their, uh, their, their international practice to set up venture capital in India. And I would get delegations from other countries. Okay, I mean, we were managing $2 billion. I would get delegations and they would ask me this question. They would say, you know, Mr. Sadana, we would like to replicate a Silicon Valley in my country. How much money does it take? How much budget do I need? You know, I'm the minister of so-and-so. You know, I'm the, uh, you know, 
in charge of this administration. Tell me how much time it will take and I will recreate Silicon Valley, you know, in my country. And I told him it's not such an easy problem. You can't just do it with capital. You can't just do it by starting a university. You can't just do it by changing a single law. All of these things have to come together. There has to be an incentive for you to exchange this information, which is a win-win incentive. Those are the only incentives that last for a long time. And then you get a virtuous cycle and you get something like Silicon Valley. The good news is that we are seeing the early stages of this in India. So firstly, in India, we have a very strong educational foundation. You know, we have tremendous universities like the IITs, of course, um, which provide a very and good Bits foundation. Pilani, and, yeah. and Bits Pilani, yes. Uh, but the, also the NIITs, also the regional engineering colleges, etc., which provide a very good foundation of education to the country. So that creates a large cadre of educated people. Then we are moving, I believe, in a progressive direction from a legal perspective. The economy has started reducing the penalty for risk. You know, the social and cultural expectation for failure has gone up. In America, in California, we embrace failure, right? If you failed at something, that's a good thing. That increases the chance that I will invest in you because now I know you've, you've tried and failed and you know how to fight that fight. Nobody wins a war without losing some battles. For every successful product, there are failed products. You know, let's look at Steve Jobs, right? He builds the iPhone, amazing product. He builds the iPod, an amazing product. But he's also the same person who built the Lisa, right? Completely failed. He's also the person who tried to build a communicator multiple times and failed previously. So you have to understand that failure comes with the territory for success. It comes when there is trust, when there is respect for each other. And I believe certainly in India, I've seen very good signs that we are moving in that direction. Ashmit, I completely agree with you. And I had a great conversation with Nolan Bushnell, uh, I think two years ago, where yeah, he talked was. about uh, when he uh, had uh, Steve Jobs interning with him and he gave him a bunch of things. It was a very interesting conversation with him. And the lesson learned is Silicon Valley. This is uh, the most impressive thing about Silicon Valley. They just adopt anyone. You have an idea, you want to do something, people will be there to support you. It doesn't matter what. All they are looking at is somebody who's willing to take risks, somebody who wants to push the envelope, somebody who's really want to do something. It doesn't matter if it's a game or it's a healthcare initiative, or it can be just a pure application like Facebook where you are just connecting people. But coming back Sanjeev, to- I'll make a controversial. I'll make a controversial statement here, especially in the world of today where Black Lives Matter is at the front and center of the political discussion in the country, et cetera. I personally believe that Silicon Valley and America as a country is largely meritocratic. That doesn't mean that discrimination doesn't exist. Yes, discrimination exists. Yes, that doesn't mean that there aren't problems like Black Lives Matter, et cetera, you know, that people face even structural issues, I'll go that far, that they face. But broadly speaking, largely speaking, if you work hard, if you follow the rules, if you are willing to take the risks, and there's a little bit of luck that comes along, which often comes, you know, which is also a necessary ingredient for success, you can succeed. You know, you and I are immigrants. Um, I came here as an immigrant. You came here as an immigrant. We came from India. We were accepted over here. The CEO of Adobe came from India. 
the CEO of Microsoft, the CEO of Google, they all came from India. They were accepted over here. They are running at the pinnacle of technology, the companies over here. So uh, that is only possible when people recognize excellence, when people give an opportunity to that. I can tell you, I personally have been the recipient of that many times when people gave me a chance because they thought I would work hard. They thought I was good at something and they let me succeed and fail and yet kept giving me the chance. So given that you know, we are in an environment which while recognizing that some structural problems exist is largely meritocratic, it is an open system. We do accept people from outside. Of course, the best people will come and, and succeed over here. You know, the question I always ask people is, again, framing it as a geography question. If you want to start the world's biggest, best company at X in the technology space, where would you go if you had a choice? What one location would you pick if you could be anywhere? And right. often the answer is Silicon Valley. It's almost always the default answer right now. That is still true. It will not always be true. Um, let's recognize, I mean, Detroit was the center of innovation, you know, 30, 40 years ago, 50 years ago after the Second World War. Um, and then they made a mistake. They lost that opportunity to continue to be at that pinnacle, which they were. And then Silicon Valley eventually became the uh, successor. Eventually, Silicon Valley will make some mistakes. I do see some very fundamental mistakes being made in California, being made in Silicon Valley. Uh, and so, uh, you know, uh, that is just, you know, the nature of politics and society uh, that this will change somewhere. Today, as we stand over here, I think there are multiple places where there are opportunities. And if somebody has a great idea and they're willing to work hard, you can change the world. You can absolutely change the world. I 100% agree with you, Ashmit, on that. Uh, we both know every life matters. So it doesn't matter if it's black. In fact, uh, I talk to my Asian friends, uh, same conversation we are having today. Uh, when I talk, look at all the females. I mean, we talk about gender diversity. We talk about all those things sitting in our boardroom, but what are we doing? So it's, it's a very complex environment. And I personally experience racial discrimination, not in America, which is interesting in Singapore. I remember when I started my career there way back in 96, 97, uh, in the interview, they used to tell me clearly that why should I pay you same salary as Singaporean? right on my face. Uh, no, that's pretty blatant, uh, pretty direct. You know, again, I've never faced anything like that. My mentor was a woman, right? Catherine Gould. Uh, she is the reason why engineering capital exists. She was a venture capitalist, the first woman to start a venture capital firm in Silicon Valley faced tremendous amount of discrimination. And she often talked about some of the some of the discrimination that she faced um, early on in quote, a man's business often interpreted as a white man's business in those days. Uh, but I had the privilege of you know, her adopting me, helping me, teaching me, allowing it to grow. Today, I'm very proud to share with you that two of my CEOs are women CEOs in an area of, uh, of the industry that I work, which is relatively arcane, and there aren't that many women. Now, both of them, interestingly enough, happen to be IIT grads. So I'm talking about Palak, CEO of Iris, agent and Anshu, CEO of Nambella. So, uh, you know, both happen to be IIT grads, but they're women um, and they're founders, they're CEOs. I think they're obviously building very interesting businesses. I put my money behind it. I love so to talk I do. to them, Ashmet. We'll talk offline about it. I'd love to talk to them. Yeah, absolutely. Happy to introduce them to you. I mean, you know, uh, and will it be harder for them than compared to the average man who does it versus a woman, if you look at it from that perspective? Occasionally, yes. 
but it may also help in some ways. You know, I brought up their names. I have other men CEOs who would be like, why are you not talking about me? You know, I'm Saket. I mean, I'm a graduate of IIT Kanpur. Why aren't you talking about me? So look, there's no free lunch in this world. And again, I'm not a political scientist. I'm not a politician. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not an economist. I'm not interested in those aspects. There are other people smarter than me, better than me who want to work on those issues. I'm a technologist. I'm an engineer. I want to take it software. I want to take technology and I want to change the world. You know, I had the luxury of doing it at VMware. Look at the change, right? Um, I remember one day at VMware when we shipped ESX Server 2, uh, I was running the program. I was director of product management. And I remember telling someone standing up and saying, you know, one day there will be 1 million virtual machines. And he laughed at me, right? And he was like, oh, you're just, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid and, you know, you're, you're imagining this future. Today, there are billions and billions of virtual machines. I mean, the entire cloud runs on virtual machines. VMware itself is a you know, $50 billion company. So uh, you can do that with software. You can do it with technology. And that's what excites me. It doesn't have to excite everyone. It's, that just happens to be what excites me. No, Ashmit, on the same note, when I was telling you about Singapore, in the same country, because they really challenged me and then pushed me in the corner, I was you know, it's your fighter nature. So when we talk about uh, uh, discrimination and all these issues, I end up designing the first vehicle location system of Asia in 97. We were wow. able to track the fleet of vehicles in 97 remotely. We were using two-way SMS messaging because there was no data network at that time. So the point is, this is what Silicon Valley is. This is what the world is about. Where if we push ourselves, we don't take no for an answer. And that's what all the audience who are going to watch it, and that's what I'm going to challenge them for. So there are a few things I learned from you, Ashmit. One is, big one I see is the trust. How do you create an environment of trust? Because once you create an environment of trust, it's, it's magical. You can really find amazing people who can jump who can help you, collaborate with you. Companies like Engineering Capital will love to talk to you. And if you are really solving a worthy problem, is this problem worth solving? Because there are tons of problems which we may not to solve, but there are problems which are right in front of us. For example, I think uh, we really need to look at the complete uh, R&D aspect of the pharma. Because pharmaceutical research is completely ridiculous in my opinion. It is not uh, caught up with the where we are today, what kind of challenges as a humans we are having. It's way far back. We can't do research the way we were doing research. Uh, we have one our, uh, another IIT Dali alum in London. He has amassed all the amazing data set around the DNA of uh, uh, Asian population. Now, uh, and there are several companies has the DNA data today, but there is no consortium where one place I can tap into this data source and create some uh, predictive analytics or create or test my hypothesis without expending millions or billions of dollars in doing different research. So there, there are a lot of huge opportunities, but what I hear from you is, can we find ways to create this trust or trusting environment? Am I right? I absolutely believe that trust is a prerequisite to success. There's no question about it. You have to have trust. 
And certainly, you know, if you are interested in improving society, if you're interested in having a certain impact, you have to build trust to do it. You can do it at the national level, you can do it at a local level, you can do it at a company level, or you can do it at an individual level. Right now, you and I are having a conversation of trust. I trust the question you ask me, I give you an answer that you and I have credibility between us. So trust can exist at all levels, but at all levels, it is ultimately a social construct. So it comes from outside into technology, which is the area that I happen to work in, which is the area that I happen to be interested in. But again, you can be interested in different areas and you will still find a lot of value for trust. It is a necessary but not sufficient condition for success. So Ashmit, now I want to jump to rubrics. You are one of the early investors. Can you walk us uh, with the, like how it has started, how you get engaged and uh, where do you see the future of rubrics as well as the future of technology? Sure, so I'm happy to talk about rubric, but I do have to give a caveat that uh, while I know Bipul well, and you know, we also happen to be Wharton grads, both of us. So we have multiple connections. Uh, in terms of uh, you know me knowing the company, I was not the first investor in Rubrik, uh, which is what I typically do. I'm typically the first investor in most of my companies. In fact, all of my companies other than Rubrik. Uh, Rubrik was started by Bipol, uh, but I was an investor in Datos, uh, where Tarun was the founder and, and Rubrik acquired Datos, which is how I ended up being an investor in Rubrik. So just for the record, um, I want to say that, but let, let's look at the story for Rubrik, right? Here you have Bipol, who is a technologist, who has a good business background, has a product vision, recognizes what is happening in the IT sector, which is this massive transition to the cloud, right? And this is early in the days of the cloud. And what does he do? He solves the data problem, the data management. You can think of it as backup data management. There are different ways of describing that problem. Comes up with a very elegant solution. And again, with all due respect to Rubrik, it was not rocket science no. in the sense of the technical difficulty of describing the problem, but it was flawlessly executed and he has built a great business doing that. In my case, in general, I'm always looking for that technical insight. I'm always looking for a founder who can understand that at the end of the day for a venture capitalist, the success is building a business. We don't solve a technology problem just because we are interested in it as a geek. I am interested in it as a geek. And yes, I'm interested in it as an engineer, of course. That's where I start. But at the goal is to build a business. You know, I'm very proud to share with you that just today, one of my companies, not started by an IIT grad, uh, Amir, uh, is definitely not even Indian for that matter. Uh, but I was the first investor and they just announced this morning that they won a $199 million, a $200 million sales contract. It's the largest contract wow. in engineering capital history in a, for a customer, uh, a single contract. So, uh, you know, the reason that is possible, and I was the seed investor and the company has come a long way in a very few, few number of years. Uh, the reason that is possible is because in technology and in particular in software, we have this luxury that we have very high leverage. By the way, the same leverage exists in pharmaceuticals, the same leverage ex exists in healthcare. Once you've built a drug, once you've written a piece of software, it's very, very cheap typically to replicate it, to sell. The first one is hard. The second one is easy. That's the magic that we work with. 
Um, I think the healthcare space, I don't know too much about it. It has other problems, right? Regulation, the nature of the industry, the, because it's an insurance driven. I mean, there's a lot of other complexity that comes over there. The part of the industry that I work in, in software, it's a little bit more greenfield. It's a little bit freer. And over there, we get this luxury that if you can write a piece of software and write it well, mm-hmm. you can change the world. Yeah. I mean, let's look at WhatsApp. How many people worked at WhatsApp? Handful of people. billion outcome, right? We are all using WhatsApp today. VMware, the original code was written by less than 10 people. It's a very small number of people can write a tremendous amount of code. The original basic compiler uh, that Microsoft sold for the Altair was written by two people, right? Just two of them, they wrote the basic compiler, was effectively built the Apple II um, with with Steve. So technology has this wonderful advantage that it has leverage. You know, Archimedes said that he can move the world if you give him the fulcrum and the lever. And we all learned about it, you know, from uh, in in grade school and Halliday and Resnick and, you know, all those books that we studied, right? Who needs a lever when you have software? You don't need a fulcrum when you have software. Can you repeat that for our audience? Absolutely. You don't need a fulcrum and you don't need a lever if you have software. So, uh, you know, that is the leverage of technology. That is the power of the area we work in. And if you really want to build on it, uh, what I will, the way I sort of, you can double click on that idea is software has infinite leverage and zero friction. There are very few things in the world that have infinite leverage and zero friction. Certainly in the physical world, it doesn't exist because by definition, there's friction and leverage is always limited, right? I mean, the lever breaks if you make it too long. The fulcrum, you know, wilts if you put too much load on it. Sure. In software, there's no such limit. There is literally no such limit. Um, you know, Google said they want to index all the data in the world. Facebook said they want to connect all the people in the world. They can do it. They're kind of sort of doing most of that already today. So that's the magic of software. That is the magic of what, you know, Alan Turing uh, you know, defined when he defined a Turing machine and he wrote his paper all the way back in the early 30s before even a computer existed, right? Before even a computer existed, he had mathematically proved that you can solve any problem as long as it wasn't a halting problem. Any of those could be solved on a general purpose computer. What an amazing insight. Uh, what an amazing paper he wrote. And that is why, you know, we are carrying with us all of these Turing machines in our hands. We are talking through them. And that's the magic of software. Oh, it's definitely very impressive, Ashmed. And uh, as a humanity, we came a long way. And uh, when people talk about artificial intelligence, and I know that's one of your interest area too, and they ask me, do I believe in uh, the vision of what Elon Musk is talking about, that the world is doomed, or uh, what is my belief? So I truly believe we are outsourcing our mundane task and work to computers. Maybe to the extent that we are giving uh, them the job of thinking. So they think for us. However, as a human, we are always, we are explorers. We are looking for new frontiers. So we will find new frontiers, whether it is Mars, whether it's uh, solving the problem of a pandemic like this, or even having food for all. And that is the, what we want to talk about in IIT 2020. And I'm so glad we had you today. It's such an amazing conversation with you and you have really inspired our audience, Ashmit. I can't thank you enough. Uh, IIT 2020, uh, the way I describe is two things. One is it is a movement and we are starting this movement and movement is inorganic. 
it's all of us are engaged and we are inviting every single human being and especially engineers to come and solve the problems with us. And second is our dream is, can we connect 100,000 thinkers, dreamers from 193 countries? And that's our mission. Uh, Ashmit, is there any final words for our audience? I love your mission. I'm very happy to support it. What I will, the thought I will leave you with is, you have infinite leverage, you have zero friction, you have the privilege of having had one of the best educations in the world. Use it to achieve whatever goal you want. The sky is the limit. Thank you very much, Ashmit. Thank you very much for your time today.